This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser, along with Kaylee lines. And we do want to get into the latest on the virus because we've had a bunch of headlines certainly today. We know Europe is seeing more cases and getting into another shutdown, if you will. AstraZeneca saying its vaccine candidate produced a robust immune response in elderly people. J&J saying the first batches of its shot could be available in January. So there's a lot going on. So back with us for our daily check on COVID-19 and with his perspective, Dr. Sandro Galea. He's Dean and Professor at Boston University School of Public Health. He's author of Pained, Uncomfortable Conversations about the Public's Health. And he joins us uh, once again on the phone from Boston. Dr. Dr. Galea, nice to have you here with Kaylee and myself. How are you? I'm well. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Kaylee, for having me again. I am doing as well as can be adjusted for coronavirus times. I know. <laughs> tell me, tell us what Boston is like right now. Well, I think Boston right now is a little bit anxious. I think uh, I feel like we are and everybody is on the edge of their seat. We're seeing cases slowly creep up. They're going up, they go down, but a, a general slow increase in trend. And I think the mayor and the governor have been appropriately increasingly cautious and uh, and uh, urging all citizens to be careful and uh, i think businesses have been doing the same so i think it's a little bit of a a balancing act between knowing that uh, cases are slowly trending up but taking precautions to double down on the on the things that we are all doing wearing masks and being careful with testing with contact tracing to avoid these cases from becoming another surge. And that's in the greater city of Boston, Dr. Glea, but what about at Boston University? How is the university? How are your students? How are you handling yeah. this? Yeah, it's actually uh, quite quite remarkable how well we are doing in the university. And obviously the university is, uh, is vulnerable to changes in the city around it. But uh, we have uh, had a fairly low case positivity until right now, which is about 0.2%, which is two per thousand, while in uh, Brookline around it, we're about 2%, so almost tenfold more. And I think the reason for that is that within the university, we have a very big university, but you're able to control things a little bit more. We test all our students twice a week or once a week, depending on their contact. We have very sophisticated and robust contact tracing that if somebody tests positive, we talk to them right away, we isolate them, we isolate their contacts. So in some respects, the university is like a city within a city, but one where you have a lot more control. So we have been so far, touch wood, doing well. I think there is a lot of anxiety I have and uh, a lot of us have about whether the larger city will end up affecting the university. And obviously, if it does, we'll have to change course as to what we're doing. But so far, the university frankly, it's a safer place to be than the, than the uh, city around it. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, right? I think, you know, Sandra, that as we've opened up all kinds of educational systems, um, you know, from K through, you know, of course, going into colleges and universities, I think we've had some success stories. And then we've had certainly some problem areas, especially when it mm-hmm. comes to college sports reopening. I mean, do you still feel like it's important that we continue to reopen educational areas? And keep them open. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think the answer is yes, but it's a it's a qualified yes. It's a mm. it's qualified by two things. Number one is that 
I don't think opening simply means opening and sort of going back to business as usual like it was October 2019. Opening means having a lot of precautions in place, everybody wearing masks, people are being careful not to go into work if they're sick, self-attestation every day, systems of testing, systems of isolating people who have positive tests, isolating their contacts, and the entire, really the entire range of, of efforts to mitigate the virus. So I think, yes, with those measures in place. I think the second caveat to the yes is that we simply need to have the humility to say today on October 26th, the answer should be yes, but I don't know what the answer should be tomorrow, October 27th, which is a bit unnerving, of course, as uh, as you can both appreciate. But mm. I think simply if the data change, we should change. And I think we as a university, I think we as a city, as a state, as a country should have the humility to realize that that the virus may become bigger than us and we simply right. need to change what we're doing. Mm. Well, I have to look ahead then further into the fall and to the winter, Dr. Hulea. I mean, it's pretty bad right now. We're seeing record cases. And then when it is dark and cold, no one wants to be outside. Everyone is forced inside. Are you bracing yourself for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am. I am. I suppose the big question for the winter is, as people are all forced inside, will they continue to congregate inside, which is which is, we know is what's driving most of the cases. And, and here in Massachusetts, analyses show very clearly that uh, a lot of the case spread comes from indoor house parties and gatherings where people are not being careful with uh, protective equipment. So the question is, are people going to go inside and and congregate, which is then going to result in viral spread? The truth is, Carol and Kaylee, if, if each of us stayed inside just on our couch without contacting anybody, then there would be no spread of coronavirus. So it really depends on what we do with, by being inside. If we are inside, taking precautions mm-hmm. will be fine. But if being inside means congregation, broadly what we saw happen in the southern states in the summer, right? What we saw happen in southern states in the summer is as things got hot, people went inside where there's air conditioning and there was all sorts of congregation which resulted in the spread of the virus. So right. I think it really depends. But, but the answer to your question, am I looking ahead apprehensively, is unqualifiedly yes. Dr. Galea, you know, Charlie Pellet was just talking about, we also check in with the, the folks and the teams over at uh, Johns Hopkins. You know, we've often seen people come out and say, well, there's more cases of COVID-19 because we're doing more testing. Um, is that true or, or that's not the case? No, it's not the case. I, I heard um, um, Professor Sharpstein uh, mm-hmm. talk about this in, in the clip, and he's totally right. It's not the case. I mean, there's no question we're doing more testing, and uh, as a result, you do find more cases. But there's plenty of evidence that... Uh, this is a real rise in cases. It's not just due to testing. We're seeing a rise in all age groups. And as Professor Sharstein noted, we are seeing a rise in hospitalizations. If it was simply due to testing and due to testing of healthier people, there would not be a rise in hospitalizations. Well, and that's a really smart point, right? And I also think about the cases that do end up in the hospital. Are they, how severe are they? And, and how are we, or what we have we learned about treating those cases um, because we have been fighting the virus now for six or seven months? Well, we've learned quite a bit, actually. And mm. when you look at mortality, you'll see that mortality per person is quite a bit down. In fact, we're about one quarter of uh, the case mortality um, that we had in the first wave, which was in March and April. Largely, that's because we've gotten better at treating the disease in hospital. We've learned how it manifests, we've learned when to oxygenate, when to not. So we are getting much better at dealing with an hospital. Now, that doesn't change the fact that if there is a really big surge, it may overwhelm hospitals and ICUs, which is what one always worries about. But on a case-by-case basis, 
COVID is now much less fatal than it was when we first learned about it six, seven months ago. So we're making progress on the therapy portion of this, Dr. Galea, but of course we are still all eyes looking on the race for a vaccine. AstraZeneca seeming to have good news out overnight, finding it worked for older populations specifically, which we know are the most vulnerable in this. But it's not just about getting a vaccine that works and gets approved. You have to scale it. You have to distribute it. How far away are we from me actually being able to get a shot in my arm? Yeah, well, I think that's a question we all want to know. I think most uh, people who are following this carefully are expecting announcements from several of the of the phase three trials in the next month. I think we'll we'll have announcements in the next month or two that that uh, some of these phase three trials are ready to move forward and then go to market. But of course, the scale up and the manufacture and getting it to the people who need it in some way that first gets it to people who are at higher risk is going to be the biggest question. And I think. Uh, you know, Carol, for you and me to get it in our arms, I'm not sure, but probably mm. we are. We should not be first in line. The people who should right. be first in line are people who are elderly, people with higher risk, people, the, the, the groups that have been suffering disproportionately from this virus. So it's going to require a real logistical effort. And, and I think and hope that we will do this in such a way that is done equitably, that the people who have borne the greatest burden of COVID-19 are the ones who get vaccinated first. Well, and that's what, I mean, this is so much of the work you've done, um, Dr. Galea, you know, and I think about the people, you know, one of the things the virus laid bare, right, is the inequities out there in um, certain populations, a lot of minority populations, certainly blacks within the United States. Are you hopeful that we will make sure that that gets distributed to those people who are the most vulnerable? you know, who might not be closest to the healthcare facilities or, you know, we've seen the stories, you know, already before. Are you hopeful? Are you, do you have any kind of certainty that the vaccine will get to those people? Well, hope and certainty are different matters. (laughs) I am, I am, I am, I am, I am hopeful uh, simply because I think there's been so much attention, so much conversation, including through shows like yours to this issue that uh, I think it has risen in our consciousness and it it has become clear to everybody it is important that we do this right. It is fair that we do this right. There have been reports, National Academy of Medicine recently had a report of a commission that articulated some very clear principles about how we should distribute vaccines. Mm -hmm. So I'm hopeful that the administration will be sensitive to and responsive to these guidelines and implement the distribution in a way that is fair and bright and reasonable. And I do not think, by the way, that that has to come necessarily at the expense of getting the vaccine out quickly. It is simply a matter of how we triage and how we create the algorithms for vaccine delivery. And it's not just about the vaccine, though, Dr. Galea, right? I mean, there's a reason that all of these communities uh, have been more, it's hit them harder. Uh, You've done a lot of work on health inequality. Do you think we do a better job of this coming out of this? And just quickly, I hope. So. <laughs> just Sorry. going back to hope, I hope so. Because if if we if we do not learn from this moment about how to narrow some of some of these inequities, truly, twenty twenty will have been a year wasted. Yeah, gosh, um, I always love when we get some time with you, Sandro. Thank you so much, Dr. Sandro Galea, Dean at the Boston University School of Public Health. Check out his book, Pained Uncomfortable Conversations About the Public's Health. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Michael, you're with us, I'm hoping, uh, on the yes, phone from Miami. That's okay. <laughs> yes, hey, listen, it's our new world order. Um, good to have you here with us. Uh, as Kaylee said, uh, this is a story. It's just bananas. So tell us a little bit about how this came to your attention. Well, we were investigating the whole issue of uh, chemicals that go into making narcotics, uh, and we wanted to find out where they were coming from. 
because these are chemicals that are in the global market. They're used for many legal things, but they're also critical for making narcotics. And uh, one lead that we had to investigate was the chemicals going into Colombia via Ecuador. Ecuador is sort of a transit point for the supplies that are needed to make cocaine and also a transit point to get cocaine out to the world from Colombia because of its strategic location. So that's kind of how it started. It, I basically went there and began to interview police and uh, people in the, in the industry and in the government. And that's how I came upon this story. It's fascinating. Jill, come on in on us. I think we've got your line uh, nice and clear now. Um, this is just Good. a wild story. Yeah, and, and just major props to uh, to Mike and Cam Simpson for the reporting on the story. Cam had a very similar story um, just a couple of weeks ago, and, and mm-hmm. this is almost a continuation of it. Because what we're really looking at here are U.S. companies that are caught up in the international drug trade, effectively. And it's not in the same ways that you would think of, of like, you know, distributing cocaine or anything like that. It's really about the raw ingredients. And in this case, it's this Texas company, Tetra. And and Mike, give us a sense, how big of a portfolio does Tetra have in terms of all the various chemicals it makes? Yeah, well, Tetra specializes in supplying uh, the chemicals that go into sort of the liquids that you need to drill an oil well or to do fracking. And this particular ingredient, which is called calcium chloride, is one of the one of the things that goes into these fluids that are really critical for finishing oil wells. They also sell it uh, to all kinds of crazy stuff like uh, de-icing roads, uh, keeping dust down on tennis courts, processing cheese, drying out cheese. It's it's a it's an agent that dries stuff out. So they're among the biggest producers in the world of this particular chemical, and they started to sort of expand sales around the world into other markets because the oil industry was sort of getting weaker for them over the last several years. And they started shipping and selling uh, some of this stuff into South America, and that's how it got diverted um, into the hands of the, of the cocaine labs. Uh, should and, know that and they, talk to us about, they haven't... Yeah, go, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, w- one thing, you know, they haven't been accused of any crime, but... Their product has been just flooding into this market somehow um, for for years, and they haven't really been able to stop it or, or even known about so, it. So bring that bring us up to speed in terms of what we know about how this unfolds in South America. Well, so the the chemical is actually manufactured in Finland and sold to uh, Tetra sells it to a single supplier distributor in Lima, Peru. So once it gets to Lima, it goes out into the local market there, and they, that supplier does what, it, what they want with it. They resell it wherever they want. And uh, we don't really know exactly how, but basically buyers uh, working on behalf of the cocaine traffickers in Colombia are just buying this stuff up, hoovering it up uh, by the ton, by the truckload, and finding ways to smuggle it all the way up to Colombia. Uh, there are laws in place that are supposed to stop this, but it just doesn't work, and there's just too much, and, it, you know, it keeps getting through. Michael, I have to hop in here. First, I have to commend you on this story. It had me at the edge of my seat, and the kicker of it, I think, is one of the best parts. You say this is a U.S. company uh, who knows you informed them that its booming exports to Peru are being used for cocaine production. They wouldn't tell you anything, any action that they plan to take. How much of the onus is on them and how much is it on these governments? Well, they say they're complying with all the laws. They're using a license. Their customer in Peru that's buying it all is, is licensed to do business in Peru, which is true, technically. Um, they say their customer says, swears they're not going to break any laws, which means they're not going to sell it to 
cops are narcos. Um, but uh, the point is, massive volumes of this have been going into that market at the same time that the United Nations and other uh, international organizations have been warning that this product is being diverted in Peru uh, to uh, agents for cocaine traffickers. Uh, so there's been plenty of warnings out there. We found it without having mm. to look too hard. And uh, all you, you know, all I had to do was go to actually go to Ecuador and start interviewing the the police because they have a special unit that does nothing but but uh, sees uh, illicit chemicals coming through the country to try to keep them from getting to the traffickers. And the more I talked to them, the more this this brand name kept coming up. And and you you know they, and so it it just became an endemic thing. So this company, when I when I asked them about that, that's basically what we, they said. We comply with the laws. And I said, well, now that I've told you, um, <laughs> what are you going to do about it? Right. And they just they they would they declined to comment any further. Interesting. And so calcium chloride is ultimately the chemical that we're talking about in in this application, Mike. And that's also a pretty basic chemical that you know lots of people make, other than tetra. Uh, and what's happened when when the narcos get their hands on uh, products other than Tetras? Well, yes, that was a curious part of this reporting. Uh, one of the police officers in in Ecuador I interviewed about this. He's a he's an expert. He's a chemical engineer, and he told me that uh, Tetra makes the purest and best quality calcium chloride that does its job best. And he said he knows this because uh, they arrested some of the smugglers and interrogated them. And they said, yeah, this is sort of the brand of choice. And in fact, once I bought a, a truckload of, of uh, calcium chloride made in China, and the, my client, the narcotics lab, uh, said, I, I don't, we don't want this stuff. It's horrible. Bring us Tetra. So it, it, they even, you know, it sort of has become the brand of choice for, for these, uh, these labs because of its quality. Well, this is a great story, and I highly recommend that everyone check it out at Bloomberg.com. I'll put it out on Twitter. And, and as Joel mentioned, uh, they have done um, a bunch of coverage in the magazine. They did another story on heroin uh, and the U.S. companies that are making kind of the hidden agreement, ingredient in heroin. So there's some great, great coverage on the drug trade and U.S. companies that are caught up in it. This story, though, check it out by Mike Michael Smith. He's Bloomberg News. Uh, P&I uh, inv- reporter, and he joined us on the phone from Miami, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor uh, Joel Weber. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. Carol Masser, along with Kaylee Lines. This is Bloomberg Businessweek with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, along with Kaylee Lines on this Monday. One of our top stories today about President Xi opening up a meeting in Beijing this week to map out the next phase of economic development. It's the country's 14th five-year plan. It's expected to include a focus around technological innovation and economic self-reliance, and that includes China having access to the latest and greatest when it comes to semiconductors. As our Bloomberg New Economy editorial director Andy Brown writes in his weekly column, this is China's economic choke point. I love this story. Andy joins us from our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio along with Kaylee, who's also back there. Uh, Andy, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about the semiconductor area, and I think this is just an interesting way when we look at kind of what China needs, certainly going forward as it tries to be a might when it comes to the world of technology. Exactly right. You talked about the five-year plan, the 14th five-year plan. We're expecting something like $1.4 trillion to be devoted to technology, of which quite a bit is going to be uh, an effort to develop semiconductors. Don't forget they've already spent about $200 
billion dollars already trying to make advanced chips and they haven't actually mastered it yet. And that in real terms, by the way, $200 billion is, is, is actually more than the United States spent on the moonshot, <laughs> the Apollo moonshot. It's quite a lot of money. I have to feel bad for semis and semi companies here, right? They've just been pawns in this battle between the US and China when it comes to trade, when it comes to everything. They are just so, uh, they go with the fluctuations in geopolitics. I mean, how can we feasibly get out of this circle? How do you diversify the supply chain so that either one of these countries can operate and use chips without needing to interfere with the other? It's a real problem, not just for the chip companies, as you know. Um, China is their biggest market. 60, right. 70% of their output goes to China. It's a problem for them because if they lose the China market, they lose the revenue that they need to develop new chips. And as I said in, the, uh, in my newsletter, you know, um, uh, Moore's law states that, you know, every couple of years, you double the number of transistors on a chip. Uh, the investment required to do this uh, is enormous. So if you actually choke U.S. semiconductors off from their largest customers, you're going to severely limit their ability to innovate. And that uh, has an implication not just for those companies, but for the entire U.S. economy. What well, do you do with all those 5G iPhones, right? Yeah. So, you know, Andy, we talk so much about how the U.S. needs China, China needs the U.S. I mean, this is really... Um, a great example of it in many ways, correct? It is. Um, you know, China is the largest supplier of electronic goods, and the United States has um, the best technology. Um, it, it, it is, you know, it, it's, it's a technological problem for the Chinese leadership. I mean, here you are right on the edge of a huge revolution uh, in technology powered by 5G, by you know, quantum computing, um, uh, and and the precondition of this is that you have semiconductors. China actually imports its its biggest import item is semiconductors, not oil, um, and and hmm. the most advanced use U.S. technology. It's it's a political problem too. China wants to say, you know, we are independent. We we are, we we control our own destiny. We're not going to get pushed around by anybody. But actually, when it comes to semiconductors they are getting pushed around. The United States is, is pretty much crippled Huawei, which is China's technology leader. Right, so what about though, what, Andy, what China can do? Because I think about, you write about this, you know, the supply of rare earths, you know, will China use that as kind of a weapon or a leverage to get the US to do what it wants it to do? Or, you know, what, how do you see that playing out? It's very difficult for them to pull that lever. Yeah. They really need foreign investment right now in the economy. Uh, and, you know, taking a hard line against, uh, for instance, a, you know, an Apple would send entirely the wrong signal to the entire foreign investment community. So they're really reluctant to do that. Um, you know, they don't really have much option except to keep plugging away at mm -hmm. trying to catch up. And the problem there is that it's not just a question of money. Money actually doesn't get you there. Mm -hmm. China has spent way more money than South Korea and in subsidies than Taiwan has. And of course, the industry is concentrated in, in those two places. Um, it's really about experience in the end. And that's something that you can't buy. 
Right. Well, so then how quickly can China make this happen and hold their own in this? I mean, the story of China is one of just a rapid growth trajectory, both in terms of economic growth, but also in their technological capacity. Um, So I feel like we've come to have a lot of faith in just the speed in which China can get things done. Not the case for this specifically? Well, it's not because it, 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 it isn't. I mean, if, if you could poach talent, if you could spend money and, and you know, build the capability, it would be one thing, but you can't. I mean, it's cumulative and, and, and experience can't be bought. For the, for the foreseeable future, we're talking about 10, 20 years, China is going to be highly dependent on U.S. technology for a core part um, of, its, of, its, uh, of its development. Uh, in semiconductors, and and that's the that's the hard truth uh, that uh, Chinese leaders now face. And I do think you know longer term, and, and you write about this as well. And we've talked about this this decoupling where we have kind of two, you know, technology worlds, right? One aligned with China, and the other aligned with the U.S. Yeah, people now talk about two supply chains: mm-hmm. the blue supply chain, the American one; the red supply chain. Uh, the Chinese one. And of course, you know, if, if, if that's the way it's going to work out, the whole world is going to be a loser. I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to raise costs. It's going to undermine innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will cripple the ability it will, or undermine or limit the ability of, of U.S. companies, uh, semiconductor companies to innovate. Yeah, it's really reigning in globalization and, and the benefits of that. Um, Andy, thank you as always. Always love to check in with you. Of course, our Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director, Andy Brown, in his weekly column. Check it out at Bloomberg.com. But certainly um, one of the big stories as we continue to watch China and doing its longer-term planning uh, and what it will focus on in the next uh, decade. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Well, it is... Kaylee Lines about to be the biggest IPO ever. I mean, this is just kind of wild. Uh, our Andy Brown, who we just talked to about China in the semi area, he um, we've had him on, and he's talked about how this company is kind of a cross between J.P. Morgan and PayPal. We're talking about Jack Ma's Ant Group. It's expected to raise about $34.5 billion Oof. through an IPO, right, in Shanghai and Hong Kong. Uh, and here's a little perspective for you. That's about the same valuation as J.P. Morgan Chase, four times larger than Goldman Sachs. How about that? Um, let's get more on this company and why it's garnering so much attention and its role in the global financial landscape. Bloomberg News deals reporter Crystal C. is with us. She's on the phone in New York City. Crystal, good to have you here with us. I mean, this is a blockbuster. Yeah, it is the biggest IPO ever. We expected you know, Aramco last year to be the biggest. It turned out to be a $29 billion deal. And then here we come, $35 billion. So this really would be the biggest deal. It, it would be a monster deal. <laughs> Why do people want to invest in it? Where's the appetite coming from? So this, the, the, this is a story of a very mature player in the fintech space. So not only is it a fintech player, it is a combination, like you said, it is a PayPal plus a Venmo plus a JP Morgan. So really it has a lot of influence in China because they somehow take over the shares, market shares of traditional banks have. Um, e-wallets are super popular in China and Alipay, which is the product that and uh, operate, is with, it's probably the biggest player in China. So, I mean, that is on its own. Just the sheer volume that they process gives them 
this valuation and this raise that they can justify. So, Crystal, is it a company that will continue to dominate in China and in Asia specifically, or is it something, a company that we're going to see spread throughout the globe ultimately? Interestingly, 40% of the use of proceeds is actually going to be used for um, overseas payment extension. Mm-hmm. And although that's, that, that sounds like they're expanding out of China, it's still very much focused on Chinese customers. What it really means is that they will try to extend into merchants in 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 places where Chinese tourists like to visit. Like, you know, when you go to I guess like the Hudson Yards, when you go to Paris, you would hmm. see you would see the luxury stores with an Alipay QR code. So um, that is that is what they're what that's what their expansion is uh, focusing on. But it's very much still a China specific play and not even within Asia. It's very much a China pure play yeah. at the moment. Well and Crystal, it's also a Chinese listing. I feel like it's not lost on any of us mm-hmm. any of us that this wasn't a US listing. They're not on the NICE, they're not on the NASDAQ. They IPO'd in Hong Kong and Shanghai. I'm assuming in large part that's because of the scrutiny Chinese listed firms are under here in the US. But how significant is it that this thing did not price in New York City? Yeah, the biggest deal ever is not a U.S. listing. It also is a Chinese company that is listing in China and Hong Kong. The the concurrent listing is interesting. This has not been done before. Some companies have tried to do a simultaneous listing, but Ant will be the first one to pull it off. But more importantly, Ant, Alipay and WeChat Pay were under White House scrutiny just last month. White House was trying to ban both products in the US. So I think that just that also explains why US is not a friendly environment for this IPO. Yeah, are we expected to see an ADR at any point? It could happen, but with mm. 35 billion, I don't think that is the immediate next step for them. So what what should we take this as a signal? We have this massive company that is going to have a market valuation bigger than JP Morgan not listed in the United States. Is this going to be the future of Chinese technology companies or really Asian technology companies avoiding U.S. listings? There has been a lot of talks about Chinese businesses going to, you know, focus on their domestic market, domestic capital markets going forward. And we saw this last year or earlier this year with Alibaba uh, doing this homecoming listing, doing a second listing in Hong Kong instead, although they were already listed in the U.S. So we will continue to see more of that, um, trying to capture Chinese customers. After all, their products are only available in China almost exclusively. Mm-hmm. And having that consumer base and the investor base that understand the products really does help with the valuation. So what does a company like Ant Financial mean for some of the established players, global banking players, whether it's a JP Morgan, whether it's a Goldman, you know, whether it's a European global uh, banking giant? What does it mean potentially the impact on them? It does look like a threat, but it really isn't because, it, I mean, for Stata, we, we don't really see Ant Financial or Alipay or WeChat Pay even being a popular, you know, product globally, first of all. It's very much... The, the marketing is very much focused on China. You have to have a Chinese bank account to open uh, to open a Alipay to Alipay service. But also, those JP Morgan services aren't going into China anytime soon because there's a very strict um, regulation regarding uh, banking licenses and all, all sorts of fintechs uh, regulations that you need to get permits from the Chinese government. So, I mean, it, it, it's two very different worlds. Mm-hmm. And just looking at the valuation and the, the, the scale, it looks like we can 
we can say that there would be some sort of competition, but at this stage, like with the very segregated business environment in both countries, like we, don't, I don't really think that's like the top of mind uh, competition. Right, but you have Morgan. to, but you have to think that those big banks are certainly watching because the financial <laughs> landscape is is evolving and disrupting uh, pretty quickly. Um, thank you so much, Crystal C. She's Bloomberg News Deals reporter. She's joining us on the phone in New York City on what is expected to be the largest IPO. It feels like we talked so much about Aramco when it was IPOing and this one like just kind of crept up behind us. And it's like significantly bigger, $6 billion, Carol. That's quite a chunk of change. Yeah, it is. And it is interesting that it's not, it's a listing over in China, that dual listing Mm -hmm. uh, exclusively. I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close right here on Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master along with Kaylee Lines. We've just got about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. Back with us, and great to have back with us, is Randy Watts. He's Chief Investment Strategist at O'Neill Global Advisors. He's with us on the phone in Washington, D.C. Randy, how are you? I'm good. I hope uh, you and Kaylee are, are, are healthy and safe in uh, New York and everybody's all right up there. Yeah, doing okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're watching the markets, though. Investors, definitely, it's a risk-off trade kind of day. I think disappointment, safe to say, and concerns about those rising virus numbers that you just mentioned, Randy, and then concerns that we haven't gotten some kind of aid package through again. How do you see the current trade right now? I mean, I, I would agree with the first two things you said. You, you said I would mm-hmm. add a third, which we've talked about previously, which is the election. Yeah. The election's mm-hmm. going to be close. There's a lot of uncertainty about, about what's going to happen. And I think people, again, are nervous that when we wake up on November 4th, we may not know who, who won the presidential election. Mm-hmm. And then there's a question of how long is it going to take to figure that out. Markets don't like uncertainty. Fiscal stimulus uncertain, election uncertain, mm-hmm. and COVID ramping up again, another uncertainty. I think all of that really gives investors uh, a reason to take profits after a heck of a run since the lows in March. Randy, what makes you most nervous? Is it the prospect of a contested election or is it the ultimate result? How do you think about a blue wave or a second Trump presidency? Um, I mean, historically, mathematically, the market does a little bit better uh, uh, in in the first year of a second term president than in the first year of a first term president. Though I think a lot of that is because normally if an incumbent president loses, he, he, he or she you know, loses because the economy's weak, right? Uh, right? I think what makes me nervous is not the result of the election. It's the idea that we could have an extended period of time of uncertainty, not knowing who won. I know there's been some speculation from states like Michigan that it could take them a week to, 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 to count all the votes. And I think the market would not like that. Well, so how do you or what are you thinking about in terms of positioning ahead of the election because of that? Or are you, Randy? Well, well, you know, normally the market, the market is actually following the script today. Mm-hmm. What's funny is it hasn't been following the script up to this point for the month. Normally, the market is down in September, and October, going into the election mm-hmm. after the election starts to rally in November and has a strong December. So what's really unusual is the fact that 
the NASDAQ and the S&P are both up month to date and actually still are uh, going into today. Normal action is for investors to take some profits off the table before the election occurs. Right. And of course, in addition to the election, in addition to stimulus, in addition to a pandemic, it is also earnings season. It's the biggest week of earnings uh, this week, Randy, $15 trillion in market cap reporting. Do we care or is it all about those first three things I just mentioned? We, we do care. Earnings season has gone pretty well. 28% of the S&P has reported so far. 86% have come in positive, so ahead of expectations. 13 have come in below and 1% in line. I would say of note, forward estimates are not moving a great deal right now. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that is most important with earnings is that Q1 and Q2 of next year are supposed to see a very large acceleration in earnings, especially Q2 next year, which is projected to be by Wall Street analysts up 40% in earnings for the S&P 500. And I think the fear is, are those numbers too high because this economy is going to stall, because there is no fiscal stimulus yet, and because the virus is ramping up again? Personally, the thing I'm most troubled by, and you see it all the time if you walk around Manhattan, is the the hit that small business is taking and the number of small businesses that are closing. We still have about 8% of the country out of work. You know, I think that that's still a problem. Well, right, because as much as we focus on the large cap and publicly held companies, Randy, that ultimately the backbone is those small companies. And ultimately, if they come undone, which we've already seen a lot come undone, if that continues and the trends get worse, ultimately that will impact the big cap guys also. Absolutely, because it'll affect consumers' ability to spend. And that's, right. that's one of the reasons we need a stimulus package out of Washington. I think you know they owe it to small small and mid-sized businesses. And I think the market and investors are frustrated that they haven't been able to, to, to come to some kind of a agreement yeah. on that. So talk to me about small caps. I was looking, crunching the numbers. Uh, the Russell's down about 4% so far this year. You've got the S&P up about 5% this year. You've got the NASDAQ up about 26% this year. Russell, though, uh, those small cap names have had quite a rally, up about 61% from that March low. Um, what's your take on this group? What are you seeing? Is there opportunity here? Uh, we think there is opportunity. Normally, small caps are, are more cyclical than some, of, than some of the larger companies because they get a bigger portion of their revenues from the U.S. versus overseas. The fact that small cap has started to pick up is actually quite positive. It's actually quite positive sign for the market. It usually means good things further ahead. Mm-hmm. I think investors, you know, are starting to get more optimistic that there is going to be a stronger economic recovery uh, next year. I would note. Small cap has greatly underperformed large cap the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Small cap used to trade at a premium to large cap and now trades at, at kind of parity to a discount. So on a relative valuation basis, right now small cap's actually pretty cheap. Mm-hmm. So if you mm-hmm. feel that the economy is going to pick up next year, you would want to start allocating some money going forward to small so, cap versus large. Wait, do you think the economy is going to pick up next year? Uh, I think I think it is going to pick up okay. next year. My question is when. I am nervous that it's going to be a tough winter, and I'm I'm pretty yeah. nervous about Q1 earnings, to be blunt. Me too. So then, Randy, call a value rotation for me. When does it happen? I think it's the second half of next year. For value to get going, you really need two things to occur. You need you need basic materials and energy to do better, and you need you need financials, particularly banks, to do better. Now the curve has has steepened a little bit recently. But, you know, rates are still very, very low. So I think you've got to feel better about banks and about energy prices to get to get more bullish on on value because they're such a big part of the of the of the index. Until we start to see those signs, we still want to stick with growth. And and frankly, we still like technology. 
All right. I know. It's hard, it's hard not to. I mean, not just because it just keeps trending higher and higher, but even the stories, the fundamental stories behind it, Randy, make sense, right? I, I think the key on technology is, do you feel more comfortable that technology companies next year are going to hit their earnings estimates right. or that the overall S&P is going to hit its earnings estimates? Right now, technology as a group is forecast to have the same earnings growth as the S&P. I think it has a better chance of making those numbers. All right. Good stuff as always. Randy, thank you so much. Be well. Randy Watts, Chief Investment Strategist at O'Neill Global Advisors, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.